0: Hello, and welcome to Unity Presbyterian Church Online. This week in worship, Pastor David continues to answer questions that you asked this week about heaven and hell. Let's listen. Well, we've got actually three questions today because they all kind of combine and link together. The questions are, is there a hell? Would a generous God not give second chances? And what does the Bible say about reincarnation? Is that possible? Okay, well, aren't these all questions that we have wondered about at some point in our lives? I mean, what happens after we die? Sadly, sometimes we're told, hey, we're not supposed to ask those sort of questions. No, you just believe, right? Just have faith. Don't really ask those questions. But that's not what we're saying here today. No, at Artisan Church, we want you to ask questions, Because it's the community of faith that together then has to explore those questions. And so that's what we're doing today with these three challenging questions. We are coming together as a community of faith and exploring them. And you may not agree with everything that I say today, and that's okay. Because that's part of the process of us discussing it together as a community of faith. But I can tell you this. I'm going to do the very best I can to share with you what I believe is the biblical response or the biblical answer to what happens after death. Let's take these questions one at a time. The first question, is there a hell? Well, I saw a van uh, with a couple bumper stickers as I was driving down Business 16. And I took a picture of it, I just had to. And (laughs) look at the first bumper sticker. It says, sin kills. And then it's got a skull and crossbones. It's got little flames next to the skull. And then a Bible verse, which just kind of breaks my heart that those things are all going together. And then under that, it says, are you saved? And to the right of it, it says, eternity in hell is a long time to be wrong. I was driving behind that car and I just thought to myself, really? Really? Is that what the Christian faith teaches? Are we trying to scare people into heaven? I mean, are we trying to teach that if you don't become saved in this life, no matter how long or short that life is, that the consequence is really an eternity of torture? I mean, are we really trying to say that you can have an all loving God on one hand, and then say on the other hand, but the majority of people who have ever lived are going to be tortured by that same all-loving God for all of eternity. I mean, as I drove behind that van, I just kind of kept getting madder and madder, thinking, well, what happens if a 13-year-old teenager who's confused about their, their life and trying to figure out everything, what if that person dies without knowing Jesus? Or what about the remote village in Africa, where that person who's grown up in that village has never had an opportunity to even know Christ? What are we saying happens? Something is not right with that bumper sticker understanding of hell. Now, do I believe in a hell? Yes. Yes, I do. But not the bumper sticker version of hell. I believe in the biblical version of hell. And as Christians, I believe that we need to reclaim the biblical version of hell. Now let's start here. If someone asked you, what is hell? How would you respond? How would you describe your vision of hell? Well, since the Middle Ages, a Christian's view of hell has been heavily influenced by a piece of literature not named the Bible. You may have heard of Dante's Inferno. Yes, Dante was born in 1265 and he wrote what's called the Divine Comedy. And in that book, it's, it's a fantastical journey of a person who's exploring hell. In Dante's book, there are nine levels of hell. We've, we've got a picture that kind of shows you a little bit of one of those levels. Um, but basically, on every level, you were tortured. And you were tortured for eternity. And there are all these devils with pitchforks and there's lots of fire and lava. And the worst sinners were put on the ninth level. And the least worst sinners, whoever those would be, were put on the first level of hell. And there's a whole, whole thing. Unfortunately, this vision of hell, one of fire and demons and, and eternal torture is still popular today. I bet that's what a lot of us think of when we think of that word, hell. But I'm not convinced that that is the biblical version of hell. The problem is that many people who grew up with Dante's version of hell as God's torture chamber, at some point said, I can't believe in that. I can't believe in an all loving God also sending people away for torture for all of eternity. And so maybe they stopped believing in that. And maybe they stopped believing in God altogether. It's a problem. So what I propose is moving away from the medieval depiction of hell into the biblical depiction of hell. So let's look at the Bible. How does the Bible describe hell? If we begin in the Old Testament, we learn that there is no Hebrew word for hell. Go ahead and look in the Old Testament. You will not find it. Now, a word that is sometimes used is sheol, but sheol does not refer to hell, at least how we understand it. Sheol was used in the Old Testament to refer to the place of the dead. Here's an example. Psalm 1610 says, "'My body also will rest secure.'" because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, or to, the, to Sheol. You won't abandon me to Sheol. So, the Old Testament did not have a fully formed picture of hell. It just simply hadn't developed yet. The word for hell is not really used until the New Testament. Now, in the New Testament, there are two words for hell, but one primary word. And that word in Greek, the Greek language, which is what the New Testament is written in, that word is Gehenna. That's the word for hell. Now, Geh meant valley, and Henna meant Hinnom. And so literally, the literal definition of Gehenna is valley of Hinnom. One thing that I find just fascinating is Gehenna was an actual place. In Jesus' day, there was actually a valley of Hinnom. It was in the southeast corner of Jerusalem, and it was where everybody brought their garbage. And there was a, a nonstop fire going in the garbage dump to get rid of, obviously, the garbage. And Dogs, wild dogs, would live there and they'd fight over scraps of food and there'd be the sounds of gnashing of teeth. This was Gehenna, the city garbage dump. Now, Jesus refers to Gehenna, or the the Valley of Hinnom, 12 times. 12 times in the New Testament. Let's look at some of these examples. Uh, Matthew 5, 22, Jesus says, Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of Gehenna. Okay, when you read your English translation of the Bible, it probably says, you fool, anyone who says that, will be in danger of the fire of hell. But we're really talking about two different things here, aren't we? I mean, it's different if Jesus is teaching that, hey, careful. If you're viewing other people as fools— or less than yourself, you're really not walking towards God. You're walking more towards like the city dump, right? That's different than to say that Jesus is saying, okay, careful, if you view others as fools and less than yourself, you're really close to burning in hell for all of eternity. Those are different things, right? Those are very different things. And here's here's another example. When in Matthew 5, 29, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. So again, here, what is Jesus teaching? Well, it's better to lose a physical body part than to spiritually be living in a place like Gehenna, the city dump. The majority of the depictions of hell in the New Testament, encourage people to live a different way today. Jesus was talking about how you live today. Jesus wasn't trying to scare anybody into heaven or to scare them into believing in him because of some sort of eternal torment that he's, he's you know, having uh, held out in front of them going, careful, that's coming. Instead, he's saying, no, How you live today matters. Now, that's the majority of biblical texts when they talk about hell in the New Testament. But some biblical texts do talk about where a person spends eternity. So in an eternal sense, what do we mean when we say heaven and hell? Let's move there for a second. I want to touch on heaven. Same question. If someone asked you, what is heaven like? how would you answer? What would you describe? What would you say? When I was a kid, I envisioned heaven as just sitting on fluffy clouds with angels. I thought, that's, okay, sure, that's probably heaven. And then when I got a little bit older, I think I was a teenager, I heard a sermon once about how heaven was like a non-stop worship service where you're worshiping God the whole time and it's almost like one marathon church service. And I remember thinking to myself, ooh, maybe I don't want to go to heaven. That sounds really boring. But as I've aged and I've continued to study this, what I've come to believe is that at its most basic, heaven is the presence of God. Think about that for a second. As Christians, we say when you die, you will go to heaven. And at its most fundamental, what you mean when you say that, is when you die, you will be in the very presence of God. And now, can you exist without God? You can't, right? No, God is the author of life. God is the creator. God created you and God created me. We cannot exist without the breath of life within us that comes from God. And so I've come to believe that hell is the absence of God. If heaven is the presence of God, then hell would be the absence of God, a place where God is not. And life apart from God is truly non-existence. Now, I know we end up asking when we talk about these topics, okay, but but who ends up in heaven in the presence of God, and who ends up in hell, meaning outside of God, the absence of God, this non-existence? Well, the Bible does speak about a final judgment, and it occurs at the end of time. So now think about some of the verses and parables like the sheep and the goats, where at the end of time, Jesus is separating people, separating the sheep from the goats, and saying, because of how you lived, I'm separating you. And to some, he says, hey, when I was naked, you clothed me. Uh, When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, right? And we're separating person from person. That's an example of a final judgment that happens at the end of time. Now, judgment's not very popular today. We don't really want to think about anybody being judged. But we really need to because the Bible talks about it. One theologian, N.T. Wright, puts it this way. Judgment, the sovereign declaration that this is good and to be upheld and vindicated and that is evil and to be condemned is the only alternative to chaos. Yes, we need judgment because we need to know what is good and what is not. The only alternative to that. If we don't know that, if everyone does only what is good in their own eyes, the world teeters on chaos. And so we believe that God tells us things that are good, that are life-giving. And God says that there are other things that are not good. And God says those other things are not going to be able to exist in the next life, right? In the life after this life, in heaven, in the presence of God, there's all sorts of things that cannot exist. We can think of those things, I bet you can think of a whole bunch in your own mind right now. I mean, I thought racism, murder, the exploitation of children, war, rape. None of these things will be able to exist in this next world, in heaven. So the Bible speaks of this final judgment because we need to know that not everything is okay and not everything is going to be in this next life. There's one verse where Paul talks about it as a final reconciliation. Here's how he puts it in Colossians. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him, so through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Well, to reconcile, reconciliation, that's a word that comes from relationships. What happens if you're in a relationship and then something comes between you? You have to reconcile with that person. You have to get whatever issue it is in between you out of the way. And Paul says that's what God does and is doing with the whole world. The whole world has something in between us and God, and God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ and through his action on the cross. God is setting things right. But, and here's a crucial point to understand, will God ever force a person to be reconciled to him? No. God is never going to force anybody to to love God, or to follow God, or to give up those things that aren't going to exist in the next life. Let's be honest, we sometimes cling to things that get in the way between us and God. And God is saying there's going to be an ultimate reconciliation, but we have a choice in that. We need to be active participants in that reconciliation. I mean, we truly are shaped by our behavior both for the good and the bad. If you're interested in this topic at all, I would encourage you to read a book by C.S. Lewis. It's a short fiction book, and it's called The Great Divorce, and it's the divorce between heaven and earth. I really recommend it. But he believed, C.S. Lewis, the author, that there will come a time at the end of time, at that final judgment, that final reconciliation, where every individual person will become face-to-face with God, and that God will seek to reconcile all people to himself. But, and this is what the book's about, we all still get a choice. And there's some whose hearts may be so hardened from their time on earth that even when they come face-to-face with God, they are not ready to be reconciled. To which point God might finally say, thy will be done. So, I'm hoping you're getting a explanation, a fuller understanding of how hell is depicted in the Bible. But we have a second question. Would a generous God not give second chances? All right, there's much mystery to this question. We just need to accept that right now. There is much mystery surrounding this question. But what I'd like to do is turn to the final chapters of the Bible. This comes from Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The images of Revelation cannot be taken literally. They're not meant to be taken literally. They are symbols. And every symbol has some sort of deeper, richer, more nuanced meaning. So you're going to see some of that play out here. As in these last chapters, we are given images and symbols of the new creation. In the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, God created, right? There was the initial creation, but then there was also sin. There was also Adam and Eve representing all of humans, declaring their independence from God. And then you have the whole story of human history. But at the end of time, we're told there will be a new creation. And right now, John, the author of Revelation, is describing that in a vision. Here's what he says. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Think the new creation. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Okay, again, remember, we're not taking this literally in the sense of you going, Why isn't there a sea? I always thought I would live next to the sea in the next life. I love the ocean, whatever it is. In this time period, the sea. The churning of the waters represented chaos. And so it's like John is saying, in this new creation, there's not going to be any chaos. There's not going to be any sea. And he keeps going. He says, and I heard a voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So, are you you getting a glimpse of what this new creation is going to look like, what we might call heaven? It's going to be free of pain, there's going to be no more death. We won't have a need to mourn anything anymore. This is the image of this next life that we are being given. But we're told that this this new city, this new creation, this new Jerusalem has a wall around it. Revelation 21.12 says, and it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. Now, as I read that, I thought, well, huh. Walls and gates, they're usually meant to keep people out, right? And is that true for this vision of the new creation? Are certain people being kept out of it? And as you read on, you say, yeah, okay. There's a whole list of people that John says are outside of those walls. The list includes the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. Again, think of the final judgment, but in this more symbolic way. A certain way of life, we're being told, is not compatible with the new creation, this perfect creation that's being formed. But I kept reading, and here's an interesting little nugget. In verse 25, we're told, And on no day... Will its gates ever be shut? So apparently, the gates of this new creation are left wide open. Okay, but you've got all these murderers and idolaters outside the gates. I thought, well, won't they find their way in? Why leave the gates open? And theories abound. I mean, some think, okay, is God holding out hope? to reconcile all people, even those outside the gates of this new creation? By keeping these gates open, is God still working, even into the next life, to soften hearts of those who are clinging to hurtful practices? This is an open-ended question in the Bible, and there is much mystery around it. But many theologians wonder, well, is this a way to take both God's justice and God's mercy seriously. Our final question. Question three, what does the Bible say about reincarnation? And is it possible? So reincarnation is the belief that after death, you will return to earth in a different form of life. Hinduism speaks of reincarnation. And reincarnation is always based on a person's works whether good works, good actions, or bad works, bad actions. So the more good works a person does, the better their reincarnation will be in the next life. So let's say that in this life you are poor, but you're a good person and you're doing good works. Then the thinking goes in the next life, you might come back as a rich person, you're rewarded. But let's say that in this life, you're just mean. You're cruel. You think only about yourself. They would say, well, in the next life, you may then be reincarnated as a rat. You know, something not very fun. Reincarnation is based on one's actions, good or bad. And for this reason, reincarnation is is not compatible with the Christian faith. Because the Christian faith is not based on one's actions. It's based on the action that God has already made for you. The Christian faith is based on grace, not works. Salvation is not dependent on being good enough, because you and I will never be good enough. Salvation is dependent simply on the grace that God freely gives to each and every one of us. Yes, God loves us as we are. Now that love should spur us on into good works, but it's not the good works that matter. It's the love of God that matters. Now, Bible never speaks about coming back to this earth in an entirely different form, as reincarnation does. Instead, the Bible speaks about bodily resurrection. Yes, God will resurrect you as you are. God's not going to bring you back as something different. So this has been a lot, hasn't it? My hope is that we have begun the conversation on heaven and hell and the afterlife, but I know we have not finished it. You have more questions, continue though to dig, continue to explore. Don't let the conversation stop here because exploring questions is how our faith grows, amen. If you would like more information about Unity Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at www.unitypres.org or visit us on Facebook. This is the Unity Presbyterian Church Podcast. Have a great week.